Let's have our Bible study in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, new chapter, new chapter. Chapter 4, this is kind of exciting because it begins the third and final section of Revelation, believe it or not. Chapter 1 was the first section, chapter 2 and 3 were the second section, and from here on out is the third, the longest section, obviously, describing, as we see here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, what will take place after these things, and we'll dig into what that means. The future after the church age comes to a close. Way back in chapter 1, verse 19, we read, Jesus tells John, write one, the things which you have seen, and what John saw in chapter 1 was the glorified Christ. Now, John got to see the resurrected Jesus, but he didn't get to see Jesus in all of his glory because he had not yet ascended to the Father. In Revelation 1, John receives a vision of the fully glorified Christ in heaven. So that's what he's seen. And then secondly, the things that, which are the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then thirdly, the things which will take place after this. And those things would include the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, and then the new heavens and the new earth, and then the new Jerusalem. So there's a lot to come, a lot of great things to come. So chapters 6 through 19, 4 and 5 are kind of a bridge between the church age and the beginning of the tribulation. Then the tribulation is in chapters 6 through 19, the millennium, chapter 20, and the new heavens and the new earth, chapters 21 and 22. We will cover two verses today, verses 1 and 2. Revelation 4.1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word this morning. We ask you to be with us, to cause your Holy Spirit to teach us, feed us, lead us, guide us, equip us, prepare us, Father, for what lies ahead, whatever you have in store. Our hope, our prayer is that all the deeds of darkness would be exposed. Father, your word said that which is hidden will be made known. That which is in the darkness will be brought into the light. That is our hope and prayer for our nation at this time, that you would make all things right, that you would correct those wrongs that have been done, particularly as it relates to this election. But Lord, ultimately we know that you are in control, you are in charge, and you will be with us no matter what. We ask you to bless this time of study in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's interesting, many people, even those who would identify as believers make fun of the rapture. They scoff. They say, that's just crazy, not going to happen. But we do have some historical precedents for rapture-type events. The first one is in Genesis 5.24, all the way back at the beginning of the first book of the Bible, a guy named Enoch. How many remember Enoch? 
He was a righteous man. And we're told in verse 24 of chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. Now, in Enoch's day, people were living up close to 1,000 years. They were living very long lives, 800, 900, 1,000 years. But Enoch was only 300 years old. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He was not what? He was not here. He was there. God caught him up to heaven without him actually tasting physical death. So Enoch is our first example in the Bible of what I sometimes call a premature rapture. Then we have Elijah, 2 Kings 2.1. It came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So we know ultimately that did happen. Elijah was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. So again, another apparent premature rapture, if you will. In Isaiah 6... Isaiah indicates that he was caught up to heaven much like Paul was in 2 Corinthians 12, and we'll look at that scripture shortly. Not a literal physical catching up, but a catching up in the spirit. In fact, Paul says, we'll see that in a moment, he wasn't really sure if it was a spiritual thing or if he was actually physically there, but he was caught up to the third heaven where God dwells. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Jesus we know he was raptured, if you will. Acts 1.9, he was there with the uh, disciples giving them final instructions 50 days after Pentecost, or uh, after Passover, rather, leading up to Pentecost. And while he's there speaking with them, it says, now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Rapture. They're all staring up in the sky. The angels go, what are you guys doing? Get out there and start preaching the gospel. Revelation 12, 5. She, Israel, bore a male child with a big C, Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up, snatched up to God in his throne. And so this is a direct reference to the coming of the Messiah. And then... He was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, future event, and then he was caught up. Again, what we read about in Acts 1-9. So this terminology, this idea of being taken up, caught up, we see it throughout the scriptures. It's happened a number of times to a number of different people, including Jesus himself. Then Philip, this is a little different, but I think it, it, it ties into the same category in Acts 8.39, when they came up out of the water, remember, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. He leads him to Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch is there in his chariot. He's reading the scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament. Philip goes up, begins to witness to the guy. The guy accepts Christ, and then he baptizes him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And so literally, Philip was caught up by the Lord and moved to another location. 
He wasn't caught up to heaven, but he was literally physically transported from one place to another. So we have ample biblical evidence of this kind of thing happening. No one should view it as weird, crazy, far-fetched. may not be normal for you and I, but for God it absolutely is. And then we will see Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 here in a moment. Now some of these you might argue, like in Philip's case or Paul's case or Isaiah's case, these were temporary. They weren't caught up permanently to heaven, like, but Enoch was, Elijah was, Jesus was, or in Philip's case, transporting him from one place to another. But they are referred to as a rapture, if you will, because they were caught up or snatched away. So, all that by way of introduction, if you will. After these things in the Greek, it's metatauta. After this, it says in the New King James, but come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. He says, after these things, the things being the things we just looked at in chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, it's really important to remember, as we went through those seven churches, there was the immediate application. Those were literal churches in what we now know to be Turkey. In those days, it was called Asia Minor. There were seven real churches that Jesus was sending a message to. We also saw how these churches correlate with different periods in church history. The final one we looked at last week, Laodicea, the lukewarm church, being the church of the last days. And we certainly see that in many parts of the church today, a lukewarmness. We've covered that. So we have the literal, immediate application for each church. We have the historical application. And so if we understand that the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, is the last church in history before the rapture, leading up to the rapture of the church of the tribulation, then that's where we are right now. After these things, and what, what is the next thing that happens? Here's we see what happens. He says, I looked, simply means I saw, I saw a door standing open in heaven. Remember Revelation 3.20. He tells the church of Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him, sup with him, he with me, dine with him, he with me. There's a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard, that was the voice of Jesus. In chapter 1, the voice I had first heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. He hears the voice of Jesus. Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Like the Old Testament shofar, the ram's horn, the sound of a trumpet was used as a warning of danger, a call to arms, or a call to worship. 
1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. What Paul's saying is, it was a mystery, but now God's making it known to us. We shall not all sleep. That means we shall not all taste physical death. We shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. Now, we know that there's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote this. A lot of people have died. But there will be, as I've said many times, a generation alive on this planet who will not taste physical death because they are believers who will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, hmm, a voice like a trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. In other words, we the living. The dead will be raised incorruptible and we the living will be transformed changed, given imperishable, incorruptible, immortal bodies. Now some argue that the rapture must be after the tribulation because this is the last trumpet. And there are seven trumpet judgments in Revelation. But this is not a problem because in the Bible there's a number of what are called last trumpets. This, folks is the last trumpet as far as the church is concerned. The final call to call believers home to be with God. After this, we'll be in heaven. So for you and I, it will be our last trumpet. It's kind of like, you ever said to your kids, the last time I'm going to tell you to put away your toys. Right? The last time I'm going to ask you out on a date, if you don't go with me this time, forget it. Until I ask you next time. Right? Get the idea? It's the last trumpet until the next last trumpet. Matthew 24, 30 through 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. This is the second coming, not the rapture. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Nobody's going to see the rapture. It's a secret event. All they're going to see is that all these people suddenly disappeared. Boy, is that going to freak them out. And I've said before, I believe very strongly, that will be the greatest revival in human history. Because a lot of people have heard about the rapture. They've heard about Jesus, and they have not accepted him. But when that rapture occurs, they're going to realize that we Christians were right. And a lot of them are going to come to Christ right then and there. I believe that. But the rapture is not a visible public event. It's like a thief in the night, remember? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. So here's another trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is not the trumpet in, here in Revelation 4 because the elect here are the Jews. And possibly any Gentile believers alive on the earth at the end of the tribulation. Gathering his elect, the remnant of believers that will still be here alive on planet earth at the second coming. So what does Jesus say to John? The voice I had first heard like a trumpet. 
speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Interesting. Jesus is commanding John, the Apostle John, obviously a believer, after these things, after all the, uh, the exposition concerning the seven churches, which represented not only historical churches there in Asia Minor, but also different periods in church history, indicating that the last church in church history prior to the rapture of the church would be the lukewarm church, the church of Laodicea. And now he tells John, come up here. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When John hears the voice of Jesus, it sounds like a trumpet. He sees an open door in heaven, and Jesus says, come up here. It should be abundantly obvious that this is speaking of the rapture of the church. And we read here, the Lord himself will come down from heaven, meet us in midair, but nothing is said of him touching down on the Mount of Olives. And yet at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, he does set foot on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So when Jesus returns, sets foot on the Mount of Olives, there'll be a massive earthquake creating a new valley there. But this is not the rapture. This is the second coming. And here's where we get our word rapture that everybody says, well, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. So where do you get that from? The Greek word is harpazo. It means to be snatched away violently. And I've used the analogy many times, but I always picture the idea of your kid is about to get run over by a car, a train, whatever, and you, you don't gently, oh, honey, you don't want to get run over by that car. You jerk them out of the way, right? If they're in danger, if your kid is in immediate danger, you jerk them out of the way. You don't stop to be gentle about it. And so God is going to violently snatch us out of here. And it's, again, it's metaphorical. Because we're going to be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. But the idea is a very quick, intense, rapid departure at just the right moment. And only God knows when that moment is. But here's where the rapture comes in. It's from the Latin Vulgate translation of the New Testament, where in the Greek it's harpazo, in the Latin, it's raptus, hence the English word rapture. And interestingly, that word rapture in English has to do with ecstasy. Can you think of anything more rapturous than being caught up to meet the Lord in the air? Amen. Now, 
I've always made the case, there's so many reasons why I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, but if this was indeed the second coming, why would the Lord bother to catch us up to meet him in the air? Why couldn't we just wait for him to come down all the way? God is a God of uh, economy, efficiency. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, God can do whatever he wants, but I, it just, again, the rapture is the secretive event. The second coming, the Bible says, as the lightning strikes from the east to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be a very obvious event. When Jesus comes back the second time to rule this world, it's not going to be hidden. It's not going to be secretive. It's, it's not going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be blatantly obvious. So again, in this verse 1 of chapter 4, John is told by Jesus, I will show you things which must take place after this or after these things. And again, what I believe Jesus means is after the church age, after the church has been taken up to heaven. People will say, well, Christians have been persecuted, tortured, harassed for thousands of years. Why should we deserve to escape the tribulation. How many of you here today deserve to be saved? Anybody? No? We've, we don't, none of us deserve to be saved. What we deserve is eternal punishment in hell because we're all sinners. You see? Jesus died on the cross for us because we don't deserve to be saved. And so the only way we could be saved is for him to take our place, to suffer in our place, to take our punishment that we deserve upon himself. So whenever we talk about what God does for his people and what he wants to do for his people, it never has anything to do with what we deserve. We don't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be raptured. It has nothing to do with what we deserve. What it has to do with is God's plan. The tribulation has two purposes, to judge an unbelieving wicked world Oh, but we don't have one of those, do we? <laughs> and to restore Israel. And so, to be truthful, God's plan cannot be carried forward unless the church is removed. Otherwise, we would be in the way. We're not the focal point of the tribulation. Judging the wicked and restoring Israel. That's the two purposes of the tribulation. After these things. So verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one, with a big O, sat on the throne. So again, just like in chapter 1, verse 10. In other words, this is a spiritual vision. This also happened to Ezekiel several times. Ezekiel 3.14, The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Ezekiel had a series of very powerful and dynamic visions where he was caught up in the spirit. As I mentioned Paul earlier, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, and he talks about it in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ. <laughs> it's kind of like when you need counseling and you go to somebody and say, now I have this friend... 
And they really need some help. Here's their problem. What do you think? Well, it's really for you, right? But you're embarrassed to say that. Well, this is done out of humility. Paul is genuinely operating out of humility here. But he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. That's the highest heaven. That's where God's throne is. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. You can imagine having an experience of that magnitude. It might be difficult to determine, am I really here or not? You know, I know I'm seeing it. Is it in the spirit? Is my body here? I don't know. And I know that this man, Paul, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. As I've told you before, where is paradise? It's wherever God is. Right now it's in heaven. But in the millennium, it'll be here on earth during the millennial reign of Christ, and it will ultimately be in the new Jerusalem where we will dwell with God forever. He was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. And so, again, we see ample biblical evidence of this type of thing. And here in Revelation 4, John, as an apostle, a Christian, a member of the body of Christ, the church, he was caught up to heaven in the spirit. And by the way, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, that's the Greek word, ecclesia, it means the called out ones. The church was mentioned 17 times in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation. But from this point on, it's not mentioned again until chapter 19. What does that tell you? Because all the events we're going to be witnessing here in these ensuing chapters are events that are taking place on the earth. Now we will see it'll bounce back and forth between heaven and earth. What's happening in heaven, what's happening on earth. But the church is not mentioned in the context of what's happening on the earth again until chapter 19. Another strong argument for the fact that the rapture takes place at the very beginning of chapter 4, right at the end of the church age. Now, for those of you who may be skeptical about this idea that we're now in the age of the lukewarm church, we now have, just in our nation in general, there seems to be about a 50-50 split when it comes to abortion, gay marriage, transgenderism, all these things that from the biblical perspective should be clear-cut, right? Well, here's what's interesting. We've also known for quite a long time that the divorce rate is approximately the same in the church as it is in the world. You would think that being a born-again, spirit-filled believer, that we should have a lower divorce rate, right? But we don't. We also have about a 50-50 split in the church regarding abortion, homosexual marriage, homosexuality in general. All these things that we know biblically, there's a clear distinction of what's right and what's wrong, and yet we have approximately 50% of people who identify today as believers, including the Pope, the Pope, <laughs> who now say that it's okay. I think that may qualify for lukewarm. What do you think? I have a strong suspicion that qualifies for not only embracing and accepting these things, but 
I would say the larger percentage of denominations today now ordain homosexuals and lesbians to the ministry. If that isn't lukewarm, if that isn't vomit material, because that's what Jesus said, I will spew you out of my mouth. If that's not enough to make you throw up, I don't know what is. That is the condition of the church today. Need I say more? Do you agree? We are in the final days of the church age. The final church, the lukewarm church. Now there are still churches that identify with Philadelphia, which we hope we do, the Church of Brotherly Love, the Missionary Church, the Evangelical Church, the church that has upheld the name of Christ and upheld His Word. Those churches still exist, and I trust that we are among them. But overall, you have to look at the overall context and the overall condition of the majority of churches today. Church mentioned 17 times in chapters 1 through 3, but from this point on, it's not mentioned again until 19. Verse 3. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. He who sat there on the throne this, in heaven, this is God, God the Father, like a jasper, according to Revelation 21 and 11, Jasper is as clear as crystal in contrast to the opaque jasper stones that we know today. And so it must have resembled a diamond, like a diamond. He who sat there was like a diamond and a sardius stone, which is also known as carnelian, also known as a ruby. The NIV translation does say ruby in the Old Testament. It's actually blood red or flesh tone. The Spanish word, as you probably know, for flesh is carne. Pretty big here in New Mexico, carne out of and so forth. So carnelian, indicative of that red color, like red meat, blood red, flesh tone. And interestingly, the jasper and the sardius, or carnelian, were the first and last of the 12 gemstones worn on the high priest's breastplate. The first and the last. Exodus 28, 17 through 21. And according to Revelation 21, 19 and 20, they will be in the foundation of the new Jerusalem. Massive, no doubt. So again, we see that symbolism here of the first and the last, the jasper, the sardius or carnelian. And then a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, light green in color. And again, even though the rainbow's been (laughs) co-opted, God had it first. He made that covenant with Noah, sealed with the sign of the rainbow. But like green in color, the rainbow indicates God's mercy towards humanity, as in Genesis 9, 16 through 17. The rainbow, and then he promised Noah he would never again destroy the world by a flood. So rather than describing the actual appearance of God. The Bible says no man has seen God at any time. He uses, John uses language descriptive of his glory and his majesty, these precious stones. And then in verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting 
clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, the 24 elders, some believe these to be angels. I don't think that's the case because they're referred to as elders. But everything about their description sounds like the redeemed saints of God. Thrones, white robes, crowns, all the things that have been promised to us. Nowhere in the scripture is there any mention of angels receiving crowns, but believers do. 2 Timothy 4.8, James 1.12, 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2.10 speak of these crowns. They had crowns of gold on their heads. The Greek word for crowns here is stephanos, or it's where we get the name Stephen from. Stephanos, it speaks of crowns similar to those given to the victors in Greek games, contrary to the crown of a sovereign ruler, which is diadioma, where we get that word diadem, bring forth the royal diadem. But this is a different crown. It's a Stephanos. It's like the victors in Greek games. Paul was constantly using those analogies of sports, athletics, running the race, fighting the fight, and so forth. And so the possession of these crowns by the 24 elders seems to indicate that they had been judged already and rewarded. The Bema seat is called. The judgment seat for believers. It's not a judgment for our sins. It's a judgment for our works here on earth, our deeds, our righteous deeds. 1 Corinthians 3, we read about that Bema seat. So apparently they've already been through that process. They've received their crowns and so forth. We have the 24 elders. And why not 12 for the 12 apostles? That's another question that's been put forth. Why 24? Well, a couple possibilities here. One, it may be that what we're seeing here is 12 Old Testament patriarchs, and 12 New Testament apostles, or this could be representative of the priestly office of the saints of God. The Old Testament priesthood was divided into 24 courses with one priest presiding over each course. So we have a couple possibilities. Could be 12 Old Testament patriarchs, 12 apostles, or it could be simply 24 representing the priesthood of the believer. Revelation 5.10 says, He's made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, one of the Doctrines of the New Testament, very important doctrine, is the priesthood of the believer. And that's why God was very much against this idea of a, a, a clerical hierarchy and then a laity. No, the, the, the New Testament concept of leadership is servant leadership. Jesus set the example. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become the servant of all. The last will be first, the first will be last. Don't lord it over those under your authority like the Gentiles, like the pagans do. That's why Jesus got down on his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet to set the example of servant leadership. So whatever the exact meaning of the number 24, there can be little doubt that what we see here, what John sees here, is the church in heaven before the throne of God. 
Why? Because the church has been raptured. Again, the reason the Latin word raptus was used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 for caught up and then transliterated into the term rapture, one, the state of being carried away with joy, love, ecstasy, two, a carrying away or being carried away in body or spirit. The reason that word, again, as I mentioned earlier, is used is because nothing could be more rapturous than being caught up to meet the Lord and to be with Him always. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we are so excited for what lies ahead. Lord, there are many wonderful things in this world, but the, the good things are all things that came from You. Your Word tells us that all good things come down from You, Father. The beauty of creation Whenever and wherever man has not been able to spoil it yet, so beautiful this world that you've given us, many blessings, but Lord, we know that they are nothing compared to what you have in store for us, what lies ahead. So we ask you to help us to fix our eyes on the things which are not seen, the things which you have in store for us. And Lord, that we would not lose hope, not lose faith, keep us strong, Help us to stand firm, Lord, to be like the Philadelphia church, to not shrink back from speaking your name, upholding your name, Lord Jesus, the only name given under heaven by which man must be saved. Lord, help us to hang on, hold on to your word, Lord, not to forsake the truth of your word, not to compromise, not to give in, not to back down. And Lord, we thank you that you hold the future in your hands, that we can trust you to take care of us, to provide for us, to protect us, and whatever may come our way, it will only come our way because you have allowed it, and if you've allowed it, your intention is to use it for good in our lives. And we're excited to see you face to face, whether it be by means of the rapture, whether it be by means of physical departure. Apostle Paul says, the absence of the body is the presence of the Lord. We thank you, we praise you. Please continue to guide us, direct us, strengthen us. Help us to be a light in this ever-darkening world that we live in. You are the light, and your light lives in us. You have to shine your light brightly in us and through us, Lord. 